Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you want to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 8, and while you're turning there, we'll be dismissing our children to our our children's class, so uh, any children that may be participating in our children's class this morning can make your way uh, to the back, and our volunteer leaders will be waiting for you there. Um, Also, as you're turning to Hebrews 8, uh, I realized I forgot to mention one announcement uh, earlier, which is uh, next Sunday we will be having a starting point class that is for uh, anyone who may be interested in learning more about our church or becoming a member of our church. And so that will be immediately following the morning service. Lunch will be provided. Uh, It's between a two and a two, two and a half hour class, which I know sounds long, but we think that's better than having you come back for a series of classes. So we just knock it out all at once. So uh, if anyone would love to learn more about our church or would like to consider pursuing membership, we want to invite you to be a part of that starting point class next Sunday, immediately following uh, the morning service. Well, as I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8 this morning. Uh, And this morning we're going to cover verses 1 through 7. Next week we're going to jump into verses 8 through 13. So this morning, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. So let me read our passage for us, then we will pause and pray And ask for the Lord's help. So Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Let's pray together. Father, we continue to plead with you as we need your help as we make our way through Hebrews. Father, this book contains such glorious truths about Jesus Christ. And Father, it's, it's helping us see more and more all that he has accomplished for us. And so even as we gather here together this morning, Father, we are reminded, as we have been reminded last week, as we will be reminded again this morning, that even right now, this very moment, Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is pleading for us. He is praying on our behalf. Jesus, we are so thankful that you are doing that for us even right now, this very moment. 
And we know that that reality of Jesus praying for us is only made possible because of his life, death, and his resurrection. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to draw near to you this morning through Jesus Christ and through him alone. So, Father, help us to let go of any self-confidence or, or confidence in our works that we bring in this morning that we think gain us access to the throne. And instead, Father, help us to put all of our confidence in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we are thankful for the spirit that you have sent to dwell in us, that he gives us wisdom, that he awakens us to the truth of your word. And so we pray that he would do that very thing this morning. We need your help, Father. Some of these passages in Hebrews are difficult to grasp, but we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to see the glory of Christ on these pages. We pray that you would help us to uh, have our lives be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. That you would help us to pursue holiness and obedience to the truth of your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help me this morning to speak what is true, to bring glory to Christ, and to serve your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you are aware that in America, uh, though I'm sure it's true in other countries as well, but uh, in America, companies and even individuals pay a lot of money to gain access to power. So statistics show that last year, 2021, $3.7 billion was spent on lobbying. $3.7 billion. So some of you uh, may not know what lobbying is, some of the children in the room or teenagers. So when I say lobbying, it's when companies pay people or firms, uh, uh, other companies, to give them access to powers of government. To, to go to legislators, senators, congressmen, and, and, and try to gain access to power to pass laws that will benefit their company, uh, to even gain money, and $3.7 billion is spent. And it's spent by all kinds of companies, in fact, even small nonprofits. When years ago, when I was the director of a children's science museum in small town Wilson, we were a part of a collaborative of North Carolina science museums. There was about 30 of us, and we paid together for a full-time lobbyist who uh, spent his time in Raleigh trying to get us money from the state legislature. Right? People pay lots of money for access to power. But here's the good news for us this morning, brothers and sisters. Look again with me at verse 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. He already belongs to us. Not that he's our possession, but through faith we are united to Christ and we belong to him, and therefore we have him. We have access to him already as a free gift. We don't have to spend billions of dollars for access to Jesus. It is a free gift that is given to us when we unite with him through faith 
and our Savior. This is the high priest we have. And so even as we start out this morning and, and get into the meat of the passage, I don't want us to run past those two words because we could sit here and talk about the glories of Christ, his power, his majesty, his position as priest, his position of power at the right hand of the majesty on high, that he's there ministering in the most holy place. We could talk about all of those, but none of that matters if we don't have access to it. But this passage starts and tells us right here from the beginning that he is our high priest. That through faith, his high priesthood belongs to us by his grace and mercy to us. So what a privilege it is, especially in light of all the glories of Christ we've been reviewing in seven chapters leading up to this passage, that he, is more, that he is superior to the angels, that he is superior to Moses, that he is superior to the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. He is the superior one. That is who we worship this morning. That is who is our great high priest, and we have him. And so the author of Hebrews simply wants to, to do a, essentially a summary of what we have been learning to this point, but to, to drill down even deeper and to remind us of the glories and the greatness of this great high priest that serves for us. And so there are three truths he wants us to know about this high priest. So let me review those three truths, and then we will take our time to look at them just one truth at a time. Number one, our high priest, Jesus Christ, he sat down in the position of power. He sat down in the position of power. Two, he serves in the most holy place. He serves in the most holy place. And number three, he sacrificed himself. He sat down in the position of power. He serves in the most holy place. And he has sacrificed himself. So let's look at truth number one. He sat down in the position of power. Look there again at verse one with me. Now the point of what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. So he's saying we have such a high priest. We have this kind of high priest. This is who he is. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. To be seated at the right hand is to hold the highest and closest position of power to the king. So for example, you'll remember in Jesus' lifetime here on earth, in his ministry here on earth, there's a scene in the gospels where uh, James and John uh, in a cowardly sense, send their mommy, right? They send their mom to Jesus to advocate on their behalf. They send her, and they send her to ask Jesus, give my sons the right, one to sit on your right and one to sit on your left. Now, I suppose they were going to have it out or draw straws or whatever they were going to do for who was going to sit on the right. But they wanted to be on the right and on the left because those are the positions of power. But in particular, the seat on the right. Now, of course, Jesus essentially told them no, but that's the power that they wanted to have because the seat to the right is the position of power. Now, the author of Hebrews has already mentioned this at the very beginning of Hebrews when he starts out recounting the glories of Christ in chapter 1. If you recall, he says in chapter 1, verse 1, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets 
But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You hear that word majesty again. The author of Hebrews is using the word majesty just as a replacement word to refer to God himself. The God the Father is the majesty and Jesus is sitting at his right hand. Similar to what we're told about Jesus in John 1.1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is fully God but he is also one of three persons of the Trinity. Therefore he can be with God and God at the very same time. And so Jesus sat down at the right hand of power having made purification for our sins. Now, Jesus being seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven is significant for a few different reasons. <clears throat> First, the fact that Jesus sat down after making purification for our sins demonstrates that he finished the job. He finished the job, right? This reminds us of what we saw earlier in Chapter 7, verse 23, what we just looked at last week, that the job of the priest was never done. It was a never-ending job. Not just in one day or one week or even one lifetime, but from one generation to the next, they were never done. There was always another sacrifice to be offered, another sin to deal with, another lamb to slaughter and to burn on the altar. A lifetime after lifetime after lifetime of the Levitical priesthood from one generation to the next. This job spanned generations. But when Jesus arrived, remember what we learned last week in chapter 7, verse 27. He offered up himself and he did this once for all. He was done. When he proclaimed on the cross that it is finished, he meant it. And so after the cross and after the resurrection and the ascension, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father because the job was done. Redemption has been accomplished by the finished work of Jesus Christ in our place. But the point of verse 1 is not just that Jesus sat down, but where he sat down. Where he sat is critically important. All seats are not created equal. Right? If you've ever bought tickets to a concert, you fully realize this, right? You start looking, you, you think, hey, it would be great to sit right there. And you click on that little blue dot where that seat is, and you think, you know what? It's not so great. Let's look at another seat. And you go a little farther away and a little farther away and a little farther away until you're where it becomes a little bit more affordable, right? Because where the seat is matters. And where Jesus sat down matters. He's not one in the crowd. He's not one of many. No, he sits down at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of in heaven. He is seated at the right hand 
of the throne of God, the most important and greatest seat of power in the universe. That's the place that our Savior, Jesus Christ, occupies. Therefore, we have a high priest who not only humbly serves as a priest, but one who reigns as a king. And he sits down at the right hand of power. He is exceedingly powerful in the throne room of heaven. And this is meant to be an encouragement to our anxious, worried, and weakened souls. Our high priest, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who we have, is seated at the right hand of power. The author of Hebrews, and God himself intends this to bring peace to our souls this morning. That Jesus has already won the victory. All his enemies have been defeated. The decision has been rendered. We're just waiting for the time to go by until it actualizes, until we get to experience that full victory. It's just a waiting game to watch it play out in history, but we know the end. Jesus is the victorious one. He has crushed the head of Satan, and he therefore sits at the right hand of power. If you are with Jesus, if you are trusting in Christ, if you have him as your high priest, then you have already won for all eternity, right? Let that peace wash over your soul this morning. And listen, I think it's important to apply this truth to our current cultural moment. We live in what I would call an age of political anxiety. Political operatives, consultants all over the place, uh, political uh, market experts, they all feast on the anxieties and worries of Americans. They want you to continually feel unsettled and uneasy and full of fear and anxiety about your future. And they want you to feel that way so they can manipulate you, entice you, and coerce you. And if they can do that, if they can get you to be filled with anxiety, filled with fear, filled with worry, then they know you're going to make decisions out of that fear instead of rationality. They want you to react instead of thinking carefully, which is why there are 30-second commercials that are full of nothing more than half-truths or little quips just to get you to react, to tap into your fears, to tap into your anxieties, and think, well, this candidate is going to solve all of my problems. And then we end up voting out of fear because we just want someone, anyone, to have access with pa to power with the ability to fix the anxieties that have been created within us by these manipulative ads. Now, I'm not here accusing Democrats of doing this or Republicans of doing this. I'm accusing everyone of doing this. They all do it. Therefore, one of the ways we can apply this passage to our hearts, one of the ways we can pursue obedience to a passage like this and pursue the glory of Christ in a passage like this is to display our confidence in our sovereign Savior who has already won the victory and refuse to vote out of fear. 
You don't need to be afraid. We can vote responsibly in a way that certainly we will hope results in justice and righteousness and care for the weak and care for the vulnerable and upholding righteous principles. Yes, we should absolutely do that, but we should do so with a peace that surpasses understanding. And so don't let the world fill you with anxiety when Jesus says to us that we don't need to worry He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of majesty. He has already won the victory. That's really good news for us this morning. But here's the even better news. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty, he didn't recline the seat and kick back and take a nap. Right? There was more work yet to be done. And so, yes, he is seated. He has won the victory. He sits at the right hand of power. But he is even right now at work on our behalf every moment of every day. And so this brings us to the second truth, which is that Jesus serves us in the most holy place. He serves us in the most holy place. Look there at verse 2 with me. He is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, a minister is not just a title for Jesus. It's a description of what he is doing. A a minister is someone who attends to the needs of someone or something. He is attending to our needs. Jesus is a minister because he is attending to our needs in the holy places, in, in the true tent that the Lord set up, and not man. Now, In what ways is Jesus ministering to us in the holy places? Well, what did we see last week? He always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. In fact, Romans 8.34 makes the connection clear between Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of the throne of God and his intercession for us. This is what Romans 8.34 says. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He is at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of power, but he is also interceding for us. You see, the humility of Christ didn't cease when he rose from the grave and ascended to the position of power. He didn't change who he was in his time on earth. When when Jesus was on earth, he said to us, I came not to what? Be served, but to what? Serve. That didn't change when Jesus took on his glorified body and ascended to the right hand of power. No, even today, he continues to serve. He continues to minister in the holy places on behalf of you and me and every other person who places their faith in Jesus Christ. But the author also wants us to see that this isn't just any ordinary intercession happening. No, Jesus is present in the most holy place, right? Do you see that? He is there in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up. 
This isn't the holy of holies that man has created as a, to hold the symbolic presence of God. It's not the man-made holy of holies that existed in the tabernacle or that existed in the temple. No, this is the holy of holies. This is the true tent. This is where God resides. And there Jesus is ministering on our behalf. And he doesn't have to come and go out of the holy place. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice uh, on and on, day by day, before he can enter in. No, he laid down his life once and for all, enters into the holy place, interceding for us, and he is there forevermore for you and me. He never has to leave. He never comes out. He is there for us, interceding on our behalf. So I know we talked about this a lot last week, but let's just continue to meditate on this truth. What does it look like for Jesus to intercede for us? Well, there's two places in the Gospels that I think give us great examples of what it means for Jesus to be praying for us. The first is when Jesus tells Peter that he has prayed for him. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So what's happening here in Luke 22, Jesus is telling Peter, look, you're going to deny me. You're going to face threats from uh, people that gather after I'm arrested, and you're going to deny that you know me. Satan's going to do that to you. He's going to tempt you in that way. You're going to give in, Peter. Now, of course, Peter responds to Jesus says, no, not me. That's never going to happen. Right? Which is probably what you and I would say as well. But here's the good news. Our strength doesn't come from our self-confidence. It comes from the high priest who intercedes for us. And because Jesus prayed for Peter, because he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail, though it seemed, seemed to have failed temporarily, it did not fail ultimately. And Peter is restored by the grace and kindness of Jesus Christ at the end of John's gospel in a miraculous and powerful way. It was because of the prayers of Jesus that Peter repented and was restored. But we also have John chapter 17, which in most translations or many translations is actually, the, the heading is actually entitled, The High Priestly Prayer. It is Jesus praying on our behalf. We don't have time to read all of John 17, though I would encourage you to take time this afternoon or in the next day or two to sit down and read John 17 with your mind toward the fact that Jesus is even right now interceding for you. Read John 17 and think, this is what Jesus is doing for me right now, this very moment. So just let me read a few selected highlights of John 17. This is Jesus speaking to his father. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. 
And I am no longer in the world, but they, they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Listen, it is that prayer coming from Jesus to the Father on repeat for you and for me, day by day by day. Father, Father, keep them. Keep them in your name. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. So even as we are under the truth of God's word right now, Jesus is praying that what we are doing right now, that this word that we are experiencing right now would sanctify us. Jesus is asking the Father to do that for us even right now. Sanctify them, Father, in your truth. Father, I want them to be with me, to see my glory. Keep them. Strengthen them. There's this powerful scene in The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read that book. If you have not, you should. It is a Christian classic, but it's an allegory of our walk with Christ, of coming to Christ and, and journeying towards sanctification in Christ. And so the main character in the book, his name is Christian, and he's uh, going on a journey. It's the pilgrim's progress. And um, a, a, an individual in the book is named the interpreter. And the interpreter takes Christian to a, to a fireplace that's sitting in front of a wall, and the, the fire is burning vigorously, but there's another man standing next to the fire just continually dousing it with buckets of water just over and over and over again, doing everything he can to put the flame out. And the point in the scenario is that Christian is confused. How in the world is the flame still burning? And so the interpreter takes Christian behind the wall. And behind the wall stands a man who is to represent Jesus. And he's there behind the wall with oil, pouring it on the fire and pouring it on the fire and pouring it on the fire to keep it going, burning bright and burning hot to never be put out. That's the intercessory work of Jesus on our behalf. Even as Satan tries to put out our faith, to put out the fire that burns in our hearts for Jesus Christ. Jesus is praying to the Father and pouring oil on the fire that it may never be extinguished. Listen, every single moment that you and I think it's our strength that sustains us, that we think it's our strength that got us through the most recent temptation, when we think it's our strength that got us up in the morning and, and, and we're faithful in our disciplines to read our Bible and, and to pray or whatever it may be, every moment we think it's our strength, hear me right now, it is only because Jesus is praying for you in the heavenly places. And because he is sustaining your faith through his faithful prayers each and every day. 
the ongoing ministry of Jesus is that he is our intercessor who sustains our faith. That's what it means in verse 2 when it says he is a minister in the holy places. He is there in the true tent that the Lord set up. He is there in the holiest of holies pleading with us on our behalf. And so we have a great high priest who is seated in the position of power at the right hand of the majesty of the throne in heaven. We have a great high priest who is there in the holiest of holies pleading with us and praying for us on a daily basis to God the Father. But not only are those two truths uh, uh, grant us confidence in our high priest, but also this final truth, which is that Jesus sacrificed himself. He sacrificed himself. Look there with me at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So let's just pause right there. So what the author of Hebrews is doing there in verse 3 is giving us the job description for a high priest. So if you were to look up this job description for a high priest under responsibilities, it would say, must be able to offer gifts and sacrifices. Must be comfortable with continual and never-ending slaughter of animals. Also, must know how to keep a fire burning and be comfortable with an open flame because you will spend your life killing animals and burning animals on an altar. You also must be able to train your sons to do the same because it will carry on into their lifetimes as well, generation after generation. That's the job description of a high priest. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. That is what they do. If you're going to be high priest, you have to have something to offer. Which is why he draws the conclusion there in the second half of verse 3. Thus, therefore, it is necessary for this priest also, meaning Jesus, to have something to offer. If you're going to be a priest, you have to have something to offer. Now, there are a couple of, of key items I want to be sure you see in verse 3. First, notice with me that the high priest at the beginning of verse 3 is appointed to offer gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural, many of them, right? over and over and over again. But notice how it shifts in the second half of verse 3. Thus it is necessary for this priest to have some thing singular to offer. In the original language, that's exactly how it is. He is to have, uh, the earthly high priest must have gifts, plural, and sacrifices, plural. But it's necessary for this priest to have an individual thing to offer, singular. It is not by many gifts and sacrifices, but by one gift and sacrifice. Of course, we read about that earlier in verse 27. He had, uh, sorry, chapter 7, verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Secondly, the second half of verse 3 is... 
in the past tense, though the ESV muddies that a little bit, but in the original language, it's clear that it's referring to a past tense event. Thus, it was necessary for this priest to have had something to offer in the past, that it's done, that it's complete, that Jesus' ongoing ministry is not one of him continuing to sacrifice himself. It is a one-time, once-for-all, finished and completed job. His ongoing ministry is his intercession for us in light of, because of his finished work on the cross. It's why, for example, we reject the Catholic practice of the Lord's table, of what they would call Eucharist, where they see themselves as re-sacrificing Jesus each and every time they gather through the blood and the body, the, the, the juice and the bread that they think becomes the actual blood and body of Christ. No, there is not an ongoing sacrifice of Christ. It is a once for all finished and complete job. His ongoing ministry is that of intercession for our behalf in the heavenly places. But then the author of Hebrews goes on to tell us in verse 4, now if Jesus would have been on earth, he wouldn't have been a priest at all, since they're a priest who offer gifts according to the law. Now what, what is he getting at here in verse 4? He says to us, well, look, the priests that were on earth, they had to do what the law said to do. There were specific animals. The, only the clean animals could be offered. Only certain animals for certain sacrifices could be offered. And there were even some contingencies built in. If an individual couldn't afford a particular animal, they could offer a, a less expensive animal like a bird instead of livestock in certain situations. And so there were all kinds of laws surrounding what could be offered on the altar, what animals could be offered for what sacrifice at what time, how to kill the animal, what parts of the animal to burn on the altar, what parts not to burn on the altar, what parts the priest got to eat and where they would eat it, right? There were laws for all of those things. Those priests offered gifts according to the law, but you know what wasn't in the law? It's not in the law that the high priest could offer himself. Right, you won't find that anywhere in the law. The law actually forbids human sacrifice. It wasn't an option for the high priest to offer himself, even if he would have thought to do so. Of course, it wouldn't have accomplished anything because those high priests were sinful people as well. So that's what verse 4 means, that, that this priestly work of Jesus, this sacrifice that he had to offer, would not have made him a priest on earth because it wasn't a sacrifice that was acceptable under the law. Because remember, Jesus is from a different priesthood. We, we've talked about that in weeks past, on and on, that he is from the line of Melchizedek. But yet we're, what verse 5 then tells us is, though he came from the line of Melchizedek, his priesthood is not completely other than. There's still this connection between the different priesthoods and the sacrifices. So look at what verse 5 says. They serve, meaning the, the earthly high priest, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Well, why does he say that? Well, he, he's reaching back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, and he quotes it. He says, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, talking about the tabernacle, right? The place where God's people were to meet with him. When, when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle, the tent, he was instructed by God saying, quote, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
And so from Exodus 25, 40, where we are told that Moses was shown a, a pattern, he was shown this pattern on the mountain, the author of Hebrews says he was shown a shadow of the reality that existed in heaven. In other words, the author is telling us that the, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifice of animals on the altar, the slaughtering of animals and the burning of parts of animals on the altar, was simply an echo of the reality that exists in the heavenly places. There, in the heavenly places, in the true tent, Jesus would be the one to offer himself as the spotless lamb to take away the sins of all who would trust in him. The Levitical priesthood and its system of sacrifices was nothing more than a shadow and a copy of that reality. It was always meant to point to something beyond itself. And so therefore, of course, Jesus couldn't offer the sacrifice of himself within that system because he was above and beyond that system. And this shadow and copy of the heavenly things was to point to the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, reality was not the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It was a shadow of the reality that exists in heaven and the holiest of places where Jesus shed his own blood and entered into the holiest of holies. Because Jesus paid the debt for our sins. He sits at the right hand of the majesty ministering for us through ongoing intercession and prayer. This is our glorious high priest. He is the one to whom the Old Testament law points he is the one that has fulfilled the Old Testament law by offering himself as a sacrifice. Therefore, verse 6 says to us, Therefore Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, for a lot of verse 6, we're going to have to say, wait till next week. Because the rest of chapter 8 recounts what the better promises are. What are the better promises of the new covenant that Jesus has accomplished for us? We're going to talk about that all next week as we continue on through chapter 8. But before we wrap up here, I do want us to see what the author says there in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now that's a profound statement because of what it implies. This verse says to us that if a covenant contains imperfections and faults, then it can never be the final covenant that God makes with his people. Do you see that? If the first covenant had been faultless, we wouldn't have needed another one. If it had been perfect, we wouldn't need to move on to a second covenant through Jesus Christ but it had faults, and so we need a second covenant. The author of Hebrews is saying that the existence of faults in a covenant gives clear reason that we should expect God to bring another one along. And yet, what are we told about this second covenant that we now exist under? We're told that Christ offered himself once for all time. That there won't 
be another covenant. We're told that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God because he has completed the work of the high priest once and for all. There's no carrying on of the sacrifice. It's done. It's over. This means there's not another covenant to come. There's not something else we're waiting for. Therefore, what does it say about this covenant? It says that it's faultless. That it is perfection. That it is the greatest covenant that God could have brought to us. We don't have to wait on something better. Now how can that be true? Well, let's just conclude by reviewing what has been accomplished by our great high priest who has ushered in this new covenant. Christ came to earth in the flesh and lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. And he takes that righteous, perfect life and everyone who trusts in Christ is given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that at the end of days when you are judged about your eternal state, you are not judged by your sinful, wicked, rebellious life. You are judged by the perfect, righteous life of Jesus Christ. He has given you the righteousness of Christ. The, the, the theological word for that is he has imputed Christ's life to you, the imputed righteousness of Christ in your place. But not only that, Christ took on the wrath that you and I deserve. You and I stand fully deserving the righteous wrath of God to fall on our heads. We fully deserve it. But yet Christ on the cross died in our place and took it all on himself. He, as I say often, he drank it to the bottom, meaning there is no wrath left for you. If you're trusting in Christ, if God was to exhibit wrath toward you, he would be unjust. Because he's already poured it out on Jesus. There's no wrath left for you, brothers and sisters in Christ. But not only that, Christ was resurrected from the grave. And by his grace to us, he allows us to have faith in him and trust in him. And when we do that, we are joined to Christ in such a way that he is our head and that everything that happens to him happens to us. Jesus gets a resurrected body. Guess what we get? We get a resurrected body. We get a glorified body. We get to dwell with Jesus Christ for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. But not only that, we've been adopted as God's children. We are his and we belong to him and he is our father. And he has said because we are adopted as his children, we will belong to him for, for all of eternity and no one will ever snatch us from the father's hand. He is our wise, sovereign, kind, gentle, generous, long-suffering, patient father. Christ has been victorious. He has crushed the head of Satan. He has fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. And from Genesis 3.15 on, all the promises of God, every single one of them are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ right now, as we've said over and over again over the past two weeks, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding for us each and every day. And God sent his spirit, God himself, the person of the Holy Spirit, to dwell in us to awaken our eyes and our hearts to see the glories of Jesus Christ, to convict us of sin, to help us fight against temptation, to give us a longing to read the truth of his word so that we can be sanctified by his word as Jesus prays what happened in our lives. He's given us the local church. Christ has given himself as head of his church, and he has showered his church with gifts 
and fill people with spiritual gifts so that we can serve one another, that we may endure to the end, to the very last day with our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. So yes, we have a better covenant, a faultless covenant that no man could have ever dreamed up or created. And because of these glorious realities in this faultless covenant, we don't have to wait on the next greatest thing. The greatest thing has already arrived. And we have such a high priest. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious reality it is that we have a high priest like Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help us just to somehow have some small sense of the glorious, overwhelming grace that you have shown us in Jesus. And Father, I think the only way to fully grasp that is to have a sense of the depths of the depravity of our hearts, of just how evil and wicked we are, just how much wrath we deserve to be poured out on us. And yet you've been patient with us and kind to us, and you've given us your Son and all these good gifts that come to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth it is that we have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Father, I pray that that would bring peace to each of our souls this morning, that we would not allow this world to fill us with anxiety, but that we would find confidence in the sovereign reigning victory of Jesus Christ over all things. Father, we are thankful for the ongoing ministry of Jesus, for his continual intercessions and prayers for us. We are thankful that even today, this afternoon when we leave this place, we will be tempted to sin, but Jesus has prayed that our faith may not fail. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for pleading for us and sustaining us each and every day. And Jesus, thank you for sacrificing yourself. Thank you for offering up yourself, for laying down your life in our place that we might have all of these good and gracious gifts. We don't deserve to be under this faultless covenant, but here we are by your goodness and kindness to us. And so, Father, I pray that you would be at work in us, that we might live for the glory of your name forevermore. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.